Uh, do you want a yum yum before I'm we start? I'm all good for yum yums because okay, I've just had it. I've just ha- I've just um, I've just had something like that. I was going to say I can't go back to savoury now, but it's sweet, isn't it? Oh, what a lovely song that is! Um, the uh, uh, I'm joined by Dr. Matthew Sweet, uh, who is is a book shambles extra about now. This this book is a very different kind of book. I think we first spoke about it about three years ago. You were you were working Sounds on it. Sounds right. And uh, I've been fascinated ever since, thinking when's it going to come out. Pre- previous books have been about the the hotels in the West End, the West End from uh, during, during the Second World War, which is a fascinating insight. Shepparton Babylon, which is uh, a far more generous book than Hollywood Babylon by Kenneth Anger, one should say. Uh, it, it, it lacks some of the uh, fascistic spite that may appear in that, um, but it is, is, is there's it's more a, love in it. Definitely. There is a a lot more love in it than that um, and this new book though seems to be uh, for anyone who expected there may be some kind of pattern it's very different Operation Chaos which is this well you could tell a remarkable story of, of Vietnam deserters in, in Sweden it's a story that I was led to in a way because after I wrote the book about the hotels I wondered about writing a complete and utter history of desertion and I soon saw that uh, there was a very good reason why nobody ever tried that before um, and then I came across the the stories of British and American servicemen who'd walked over the lines in North Korea and then ended up playing all the villains in North Korea's equivalent of James Bond because they were the only kind of Caucasian looking people in the country but they were obviously quite hard to get to and in fact the last one died um, in 2016 and then I came across the story of the Vietnam deserters who'd gone to Sweden and I knew that deserters and draft resistors had gone to Canada but Sweden, this was totally new to me. And then when I, I found the place where they ended up, that was the, the thing that persuaded me that I had to follow them on that path because it was the most outlandish story that I've ever written. And I was determined to track down those people who remembered what they'd been through and could make some guess at telling me what was truth and what was a kind of dream that they'd been living in. Well, that's part of the fascinating thing. I was, I was talking with the author John Higgs the other day about the uh, the way that we kind of reassimilate and change our memories. And that seems to come across in the book as well, which is you have a group of people who deserted, some of whom for what seems to be very political reasons, sometimes just because generally they didn't agree with it, and sometimes they just... It seems like you've got a double deserter in there, for instance, who deserts, returns, and then decides... He goes to Canada, doesn't he, and decides to desert again? To he goes back. He's the only person who ever deserted twice... Um, and his career also included fessing up everything to the authorities about um, his friends and his contacts in Sweden. So blowing open the, the secret routes that they'd been building um, across the continent from Japan through Russia into Sweden. And also when he came back, he, he decided to rob a, a bank um, in Stockholm. Uh, using a water pistol, but um, he panicked when um, the uh, the alarms went off, and he ran straight into the plate glass door. He didn't realise that it had been closed, and so he was easily apprehended by a 16-year-old girl who who bore a passing resemblance to Velma from Scooby-Doo. So there's a kind of of uh, the mixture of the of of the farcical, the the heroic, and the downright strange um, in all of this that has been intoxicating me now three years it is as long as that you can probably see the marks of it on me but it was so dramatic you know the first deserters to come to Sweden came from 
Japan. Most of them had served. Um, there are one or two Purple Hearts in that group. So we're not talking about the, 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 the figure of the draft dodger who, who, we, who we preserve in our minds. Um, and um, they deserted while they were on R&R in Japan. They fell in with a Japanese anti-war movement, um, anti-war group, who would stand uh, at the quaysides trying to persuade deserters to or persuade um, service people to desert and not quite thinking that they would be successful. But suddenly people started agreeing. And so they created this network where um, deserters could live underground in Japan while, uh, until the moment that they were ready to be shipped out on fishing boats to the coast of the Soviet Union, um, from which they were taken to Moscow and Leningrad, given the tour, looked after by the KGB, interviewed by Yuri Andropov, um, made to go on Russian TV and in some case confess to atrocities that they'd never really witnessed, as well as denouncing the war. And then when the usefulness was over, they were propelled forward into Sweden, which was the only non-communist country in Europe that would grant a Vietnam deserter humanitarian asylum. Um, but they kind of walked into, it wasn't a trap exactly, but they walked into a very uneasy situation. Well, that, that when you talk about the, the kind of admissions, I mean, that's sort of fantastic bit very early on in the story where you have this guy who is basically saying, uh, I mean, that's the thing that when you start off with that idea and you think, well, I'll find out about these people, the, to discover the richness of those characters. So you have that, that guy seems to have something akin to Munchausen syndrome, where he's basically saying, and then we cut off all the ears and we turn them into necklaces. And, oh, and then there was a man called Edwin J. Arnott. And, and he's a ship's cook. Mm. He never saw any of this. So yeah. he, but he becomes obviously. Do you think he said those things to, to please his. You know, it's like, oh, this will make me. Is it, you know, that showbiz drive? I think that's absolutely what happened. They were very, very young. He was um, a, a strange case, really. I think he may have had some kind of uh, learning disability. So at a disadvantage to all the others. The others didn't like him. They were, he travelled with a group of six, a very mixed bunch, um, uh, a man with a Korean background who eventually um, went to North Korea. That's where he went instead of Sweden. Apparently he's still there and a major in the army. Um, and uh, so a very mixed bunch. Um, and the, the one from that group that I got to know the best, he said as soon as he met the others, he thought, they're all crazy. And they all thought that about each other. And he had to spend uh, time with them um, in this cramped cabin um, on his way to the Soviet Union. And then to be propelled into that, uh, into that situation where you're a kind of trophy and you really don't know what's going to happen. And you maybe want to make a stand um, or, or don't want to make a stand, but there's a sort of energy that that situation has um, that I think made people say things that were not true. And I think the influence of the KGB was at work there. They were schmoozed um, by the KGB, and they were told that they were they were heroes for making a stand against Western imperialism. So all the time through this story, I've been very, very careful not to, to judge anybody in it, really. I am mightily glad I have never been, and I'm unlikely to be um, in the moral position that these guys were in. And that goes for the, for the spies as well, on the other side of this story, the, um, the CIA people who were charged to surveil this group and, um, and through other agencies maybe do a little more. 
Well, that's something that, I mean, did you at any point find yourself almost becoming, at least on the cusp of paranoia? Because you're meeting all these people who are giving you different angles of stories, giving you entirely different interpretations of people's personality. And there's there's something of, of this really about um, the, that wonderful G.K. Chesterton story, The Man Who Was Thursday, where, for those who don't know it, there's basically an agent who goes in to uh, investigate and break a group of anarchists. And as time goes on, it turns out that actually pretty much none of them are anarchists. They are all people who've been sent in to break the anarchist group. So the anarchist group is merely secret service people, really. There is a touch of that. There's a sort of feedback loop going on. The CIA are charged to investigate... Uh, uh, whether there's any Russian involvement, any Soviet influence upon these radical deserter groups. But perhaps the people who were most radical inside those groups were paid agent provocateur. And that's the puzzle that all of these guys have been trying to solve for the last half century, really. And yes, I have had to enter into the zone with them. And um, I spent lots of time with uh, with most of them, um, got to know most of them very well, I think. And they're still part of my life. But all with these highly subjective experiences that really can't be reconciled. So somebody in that group um, isn't telling the truth. Mm. Um, And they had this relationship um, that was strangely close in many ways, and yet also had space for the suspicion that your friend, or might have been your friend, but he might also have been reporting everything you say back to CIA headquarters Mm. at Langley, because there are odd documents that have survived, that show that somebody was doing that. The names are, are redacted, of course, but the, the paper trail, even though the CIA, um, uh, uh, according to the rules of the game, incinerated everything. They even incinerated the magnetic computer tape that all of these files were stored on, which was quite unnecessary, just sort of rubber magnet over it. But they wouldn't listen to that. They said, burn it all, burn it all. Um, so, um, so we can show that those men were there. But, and I think in the cast of the book, the mole is there, maybe more than one mole is there. But the agony of not knowing is what these guys live with. How did you persuade, because I, I, I think when we were, I think we were probably doing something for Front Row at the, uh, the, the, the day that I met you when you were quite an early stage, this, but to persuade those people to take part because as you mentioned at the time I think that particular day you just reached the point of persuading someone and then they were like ah hang on a minute and the paranoia had taken over so you if this psychologically dealing with with some people who have have lived with this paranoia for 50 years it must be very difficult to get them to open up initially well it in a way, but also they're quite talkative, most of them. They are all trying to solve the same mysteries that, that I got interested in. Um, and there was a lot of suspicion um, at first. One of the deserters who I now know the best uh, refused to meet me for a couple of years and then only met me um, in a parking lot in, in San Diego. And I had no real idea whether he would, uh, whether he would turn up. Um, another who was the, the guru figure of the deserters and the man around whom most of the suspicion suspicion coalesced a man called Michael Vale who was older than the deserters and seemed to have a mysterious source of income and a flat that they could all stay in and put them through this very intense political psychological conditioning which did quite a lot of them um, harm but uh, I had um, I tracked him down eventually and I got a an email um, from Odessa this was when it was all kicking off in Odessa um, saying, oh, yes, I'll meet you. And then a couple of weeks later, another email came, I'm in London. And I said, oh, well, why don't you come and have uh, lunch uh, at the BBC where I work? And he said, no, 
Islington Green, last, last bench on the right, I'll be holding something red. So the, the rituals of all of this are, are, attend to them in a way. There's a sort of mode that goes with this life. And it's as much drawn from popular culture um, as it is from any kind of um, real, empirical, real-life experience. There does seem, when Michael Vale, the, these stories of the kind of psychological breaking, there, there were times where it almost felt like what it must have been like to be in the Smiths, where you kind <laughs> of, you know, Morrissey were, were, may well crush you, but at the same time you still have this tremendous sense of admiration and allegiance, and that, yeah. that I don't know, it's, it's, uh, I won't call it Stockholm Syndrome, even though it's based in Stockholm, but it, it does seem to have some smattering of that he was, obviously he had some charisma there, something very special. He still has think. charisma. I mean, I have felt that charisma, and there were moments when I wondered whether he wasn't working his influence upon me, because it's very rare to meet somebody about whom you've had, you've heard so much bad news. Uh, he was like Rasputin, he was the butcher of the group. Um, he takes men apart. These were the comments that, that came down to him, uh, came down to me uh, on the record. Um, the, uh, Clancy Siegel, a uh, uh, friend of mine, the writer who's, uh, who died um, quite recently, he met Vale in Stockholm and he said, oh, he's like a character out of Dostoevsky. He just loves chaos. And, but I now have a sort of relationship with him. We meet for, for lunch and coffee when he passes through um, this country. I met him in Paris as well. So we've been having these slightly le carrière-ish liaisons um, across the world. And if he calls me, I will come. But I couldn't tell you that I trusted him, really. And I know that you know we've been over and over the story um, over a long period of time now. And I think that in telling it to me, he came to a realisation about it because he thought he was building a revolutionary army. He wanted to take those deserters back to America and together they would be like the Bolsheviks were in Russia in 1917 and take over, um, take over the country. But he was displaced by another more sinister, nastier guru figure who made him look like a bit of a pussycat. And now Michael, partly because of those experiences, lives a kind of life of exile. He is like somebody from... Joseph Conrad, or uh, you know, perhaps even G.K. Chesterton, who is roams the world. Um, he's always in war zones. I don't really know why. Uh, for somebody who I've spent so much time with, uh, about whom I know so many details, I know about the intimate details of his childhood, for instance. Um, but I still, there is something between him and me that prevents me from reading him completely. Well, that's what, what I think. It, this book has just been published in the UK, but in it came out first in the US. Mm. And I suppose the thing that definitely links this to your your previous two books is the lost history element to it. That mm. you know, Shepton Babylon reveals the world of British cinema, which most people would be un, unaware of unless you know the, the very much the, the forgotten figures who would have been on the cigarette cards at the yes. time. And and the West End front again kind of manages to 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 blow away the idea of, and then everyone just came together in London and it was all super and everything, you know, that, and this again, this is another, what seems to me, how much, well it reminds us, each one of your books to me, of how much history is lost on an almost daily basis, it just gets, so this, what was the reaction in, in, in America, because obviously this is far closer to them, the Vietnam War there hangs yes. heavy, it is a, a black dog on, on the kind of conscience. Eyebrows went up, 
because this is a part of the story. The, the memory of deserters who went to Canada is, is well preserved. The memory of those who went to Stockholm is absolutely not, even though it was front page news. But the, the, the place where the story goes um, takes, it takes us into the workings of a radical uh, organization based in New York, which was one that the deserters joined up with and were absorbed by. And that is a notorious political cult that's still at work today. It had a, a kind of a boom period uh, in the 70s and 80s when its leader, um, a man named Lyndon LaRouche, um, uh, ran for president. I think he he's run eight times now, and he's he's ninety five now and living in Germany. But I wouldn't put him past put it past him to to try it again. And his name is like a, there are episodes of The Simpsons where there are jokes about him. Homer goes on board a flying saucer and sees the aliens, um, you know, fiddling with presidential candidates, um, and um, and he says, "Oh my God, Lyndon Larouche was right." Um, uh, so he was the promulgator of conspiracy theories, and actually, just as I as I say that, there was one that was very close to the to the Simpsons one, um, in which uh, the Larusians claimed that President Carter was being uh, having his brain reprogrammed in the basement of the Brookings Institution, um, and that uh, he would uh, set an evil plan in place as soon as he became president. Um, and the man who was given the credit for this evil plan was a, a British uh, psychiatrist called Peter Bourne, who was the man who told Carter to stand for president for the presidency. And he was also in Vietnam. He, he looked at, the, at, the, at the, the, the mental health of, of people who had served there. But, you know, everything leads somewhere else because that name, Peter Bourne, was uh, was stolen by Robert Ludlum for the Bourne Supremacy, which is about people having their brains reprogrammed in basements. So, it, unfortunately, Ludlum is dead, but I'd very much like to ask him, well, did you pick up one of these leaflets? Because you've got the name here, you've got the, the basic premise, and you were in Washington at the time. Oh, that's, that's nice. It like fits in with that wonderful the history of the Discordians as well, where the Discordians suddenly, there are links that go towards the JFK assassinate, and they're all kind of, that's, that, that's the, uh, I mean, is that something you found as you've investigated as well, which is how often you find that two things which are so poles apart in where they may well appear in the newspaper and the years, the pages and the years, and yet you go and here still the you know the, the the six degrees is actually too many degrees. It's very yes. often three or four. It's true. You have to be very careful when you're handling assertions like this. I mean one of the things I tried very hard to do was not uh not endorse any of the, the theories that these men began to live their lives by. Uh, for instance, that the Queen of England secretly runs the international drugs trade. Um, that she's trying to start World War Three. Uh, this is a plan that she concocted in the 60s with Bertrand Russell, um, for which the Beatles were, were an important part of the operation. They were sent to America to demoralize American youth, and it worked. So this was all <laughs> part of the... These were all ideas that you had to take on if you wanted to be a member of this group, and they were controlled by the by the severity of the of those switcheroos, the necessary deviation, I think it's called. Um, we're at war with Oceania today. We were at war with Eurasia, um, or, or not, not Eurasia, Eurasia. Tomorrow, um, and um, there's something that happens to people when they live their lives like that. And one or two of them are still in this world. Most escaped, but there is one deserter. He's the leader. Uh, he was the leader of the American Deserters Committee in Sweden, the poster boy for it, really. A man called Bill Jones, who deserted from a, a base in Germany. Well, he um, was swallowed up by this cult, 
um, he subscribed to the belief that the the deserters were in fact not a, a regular political organization but actually a kind of hit squad who had had their minds programmed in a Manchurian candidate way by Michael Vale, the mysterious guru of the group. And in a way, there is a tiny grain of truth in that. He did mess with their minds. But from this blossoms the, the, the terrible beauty of a story that is essentially the Manchurian candidate, in which these men chose to live and operate by for years. And in fact, one of them who I spoke to not very long ago said, are you, are you sure he wasn't trying to build a zombie army? So the ideas are so powerful that even though consciously and logically they're re rejecting them, mainly now, um, they still exert a powerful pull. And the man who is still inside the group, Bill Jones, he's still a, one of uh, LaRouche's uh, sidekicks. He is their Washington correspondent. Um, and he told me about his, uh, his uh, interesting theories about the secret criminal life of uh, Queen Elizabeth II. She's an operator. <laughs> is what, uh, what he said to me. Um, at the beginning of 2017, I was watching one of Sean Spicer's press conferences, and there he is, Bill Jones, standing in the White House, asking a sort of perfectly sensible question about the reform of the banking laws of Sean Spicer. Um, and in the middle of all of these, you would assume, kind of highly, highly vetted correspondence, maybe not that highly vetted, it's fascinating, isn't it, when you, sometimes you can meet people who are, to to what whichever limitations we give in terms of sanity, they appear to be totally... And then suddenly one night in a pub it turns out that they have still got space in their mind for... There's a lovely bit of research by a guy called David Robert, David Robert Grimes who looked at... He was, he was particularly looking at the moon conspiracy, the conspiracy mm. that never landed on the moon. Yeah. Um, he basically he worked out the mathematical equation for how many people it requires uh, for a secret to be kept for a certain amount yes. of time. And once you get to an organisation organization the size of NASA, the ability to maintain that as a secret without anyone just no you go that that would last about probably forty eight hours. You know yes. that that's, yeah. that's yes. you, you need to get it down to mm. only three people and even then but that that, that uh, it, I mean that's a wonderful thing about this book which is you know you get that sense as well of how these conspiracies grow, how the paranoia grows, and especially now we're you know another kind of paranoid mindset that is being used a great deal in the news media. It does seem to me that there is, in a way, the this group have been a relative failure online. They are a dying um, organization. Um, they're trying to cultivate the Chinese uh, at the moment. They may have better luck there because the Chinese clearly don't really know who they are. Um, they call themselves the Schiller Institute sometimes. They call themselves uh, LaRouche Pack, the Political Action Committee. So they have uh, numerous uh, um, uh, subsidiary organizations. Um, but they're not in good shape. And I went, in fact, and in a way, in not, I won't say infiltrated because I, w I didn't disguise who I was. I went along to one of their meetings in the basement of a hotel in New York. And um, they were a sorry bunch, really. Um, we all had to sing the opening bars of bars of Mozart's Requiem before the meeting began, and then because uh, Larouche wasn't going to put in a personal appearance on the on the video screen, Big Brother style, we had to watch some ancient VHS of him um, talking about Chinese railways, which is one of the things they're most enthusiastic about. We were all browbeaten in this meeting for not knowing enough about the capacity of refrigerated. Um, uh, carriages travelling between uh, Beijing and Moscow. So 
this is the kind of thing that, in a way, there's a sort of respectability uh, to that idea. But dig a little deeper, and and the worms start wriggling, um, so that they offer themselves as people who are interested in um, progressing culture and restoring classical culture. But their main influence on the world is entirely negative um, upon the lives of the people who come into their orbit. Um, the most uh, most tragic example of which is the the case of a, a student from London called Jeremiah Duggan, who went to one of their meetings in Wiesbaden and was then found dead on the autobahn um, a couple of days later. Um, and there have been a couple of, of um, investigations into that. I attended the last inquest on that case, uh, which uh, expert witnesses presented uh, their their uh, analysis that he had been killed somewhere and moved on to the autobahn. I've no idea of the truth of that. But LaRouche's lawyer was sitting in the room writing all of this down. Um, so they are not nice people, and they never cooperated with the, those investigations in Germany. Um, they never helped them as much as they should have done and, and could have done. And so for the, the, the Duggan family, who, uh, who live in London... There is, um, there, you know, they have to um, reconcile themselves, perhaps, to never knowing the truth about this. But I hope if the, if another inquest in Germany um, gets up and running, then then some people may be summoned to speak at it, who will have to just tell in a straight way what really happened to him. You, your interviewees are getting younger and younger. They started in their nineties. They, they went did down to their seventies yeah. almost, and, and 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 now some are in the sixties. Uh, are you taking a little bit? Having, I mean, this this I presume is, has been your to- most totally immersive book in terms of having to to travel the world to yeah. to find out. You know, most of the other things, I suppose, there was more of a paper trail that hadn't been shredded. And I was also dealing with people who were not. Um, when were, were quite used to the idea of being interviewed, even if nobody had um, come in front of them with a notebook and pencil since the 1930s. So old film stars, even like um, old 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 members of the aristocracy, they've talked to biographers over the years about all the people who they came in contact with. So um, there were very few people who were confused or baffled by why I would want to talk to them. Here was very different because I'd been finding out names by looking at, uh, at the um, the news reports that were given out in Sweden when men were granted humanitarian asylum. So there you get an age and you get a hometown. And that meant, that gave me something to, to work with. But it, it was a very long process. And they are younger. You know, they're about my mum and dad's age, uh, these people. They're all in their early 70s. So it, it is a different generation. And they were also not people who, like some of the much older figures in their 90s and beyond even, who I've talked to, who were giving a gracious wave on their way from the stage, uh, some of them. Um, so it has been much more... It, it's got into my bloodstream much more. And, of course, it's nice meeting old film directors and old actresses, Oh, we just had. You just used to have tea at Fortnum's and stuff like that. It was great. Um, here, I've been to some much less comfortable places, and I'm talking to people about much more sensitive stuff. And I'm amazingly grateful to all of the people who did talk to me because none of them had to. 
And they were sometimes talking about things they'd never told their families about. I remember, you know, I've had more than one sitting up with an interviewee at, at 2 a.m. and the wife sleeping in the next room and them saying, well, look, well, this is what happened. Yeah. There's a very uh, nice couple called Chris and Carol White who I've got to know quite well. Now, Chris, for a long time, was persuaded that he had been programmed to assassinate Lyndon LaRouche. Um, and uh, there was a part of the story that involved him getting on an aeroplane at Gatwick and taking off, but there being an explosion on the aeroplane and him being put back down on the ground. And that's when he thought somebody had uh, interfered uh, with him. And he came back into central London um, and, uh, and in a way made a bit of a scene at the Conway Hall, which is where they were having their, their meeting. And, you know, even last week... We were discussing this aircraft explosion and I said, well, you know, I've looked at all of the data. I've looked at all of the reports. I can't find um, any reference to this. So I think we're fairly safe in saying that it didn't happen and that it was a, a kind of dream. It's so intense and so vivid. And once I think you've looked at one event in your life that seems very strong and plausible to you and very intense and begun to question it then you question lots of other things as well you question maybe you know the whole environment that you were in if you could be persuaded um that uh, that this process had been done to you and in a way because it 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 might as well have happened to him because what what uh, occurred next was that he was locked in a room uh, deprived of sleep and un- and and the interrogators got the story out of him, which they just made up in the room together. But from that point, everybody was obliged to live as if it was true. It's terrifying. It's like, like when the uh, um, repressed memory syndrome began and then the research that was done into that, into finding how easy it is to place a memory. Yeah. In, you know, yeah. so, um, we better end there. But yeah. this is Operation Chaos is out now in the uh, UK and the US. And... Uh, it made me want to read spy novels now. I never read yeah. spy novels, but it, it, it's <laughs> every chapter ends with a. So now I had to, and you'd think, right, who's this guy going to be? What's yeah. this? It's wonderful. We're, we're talking in a booth here, Robin, a glass booth, and I'm just a bit worried that you know, I, there might be some. So there's nozzles upon the ceiling, <laughs> a little bit suspicious <laughs> to me. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Mm-hmm.